Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 331. Uh... Just got home from a, a really fun Talking Dead episode with Keegan Michael Key and Eliza Dushku and Lauren Cohan, and and uh, now, now I'm in a, a weird nerd rage because okay, guys, because uh, in Skyrim there is a side quest where you're supposed to find the 24 stones of Berenzia for the Thieves Guild, and I can only find 21 of them. Where are the other three? Did I leave one in the Dark Brotherhood, which I can't go back to now because I already completed that quest line? I don't know what I'm supposed to do with 21 Stones of Baron Zaya. I need help. Could Bethesda please just send me a patch, a workaround, to just make the last three Stones of Baron Zaya appear on my map? Uh, that would be great. I've gone on enough about Skyrim. Uh... First-person shooter world problems. Um, well, it's not really a first-person shooter, is it? It's more of an RPG, but no, it's not really an RPG, is it? No, it really kind of is. It's kind of a first-person shooter. Um, this has gone on way too long. Come see the Nerdist Podcast live. Uh, we're going to be at Gilda's Laugh Fest, which will be Friday, March 15th in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Then March 29th, during WonderCon, we're doing a, a podcast in Anaheim that night, on March 29th. And then I'm doing a bunch of stand-up in places like New York and Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, Denver, and Portland, and D.C., and Baltimore. So go to nerdist.com slash calendar for all of that information. I would like to thank Stamps.com for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Listen, you're productive when you're working at your desk. You don't want to break your workflow. That's a fancy word. To go to the post office to mail stuff or buy stamps. That's why you got to have Stamps.com. You can just print out official U.S. postage right from your computer, right from your printer. Then they'll send you a digital scale. It'll calculate the exact postage that you need for any letter or package, any class of mail. And then you don't have to waste valuable time parking, going into the post office... Dealing with people. So, stamps.com has a special offer for Nerdist uh, podcast listeners. You can get a no risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, including that digital scale I talked about and up to 55 bucks in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Nerdist. That's stamps.com promo code Nerdist. Guys, guys, no, seriously, guys, Steve Carell on the podcast today. Um, I almost feel like I'm collecting comic books. Uh, and today's comic book that is very rare is Steve Carell. 
Um, how can you not love Steve Carell? How can you love comedy and not be influenced by Steve Carell in some way if you're a performer? So uh, Steve came on. Uh, Burt Wonderstone comes out this Friday the 15th. And you should go see it. It's a delightful film with Steve Buscemi and Jim Carrey and Olivia Wilde. And they're all fantastic. And James Gandolfini, who's great. So uh, Burt Wonderstone this Friday. And uh, Steve Carell, again, night. It just, it's so heartening. Do people say heartening? I know we say disheartening. I guess heartening should be, I guess heartening is a word. So there would have to be a word to have a diss. So it is very heartening to know that uh, someone can be that successful and that funny and then just be like a regular nice guy. So here we go. The Nerds Podcast. And I know I say that a lot, but we have a lot of nice people on the fucking podcast. No one's been a dick. So when someone comes on and they're a dick, then I will probably say in the beginning that they were not as nice as they could have been. I probably wouldn't just call someone out for being a dick. But Steve was not remotely near Dicktopia at all. He was amazing. Oh, I said amazing again. Oh, I went four minutes without saying it. But he is! The Nerdist Podcast number 331 with Steve Carell. Now entering Nerdist.com I'm excited that you're finally on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> you have to lean into the mic just a little bit more. I'm These are excited. crappy radio mics. Right. I apologize. Is that better? Does that feel comfortable to just crane your neck forward the entire show? I will. Like this? I'm there. Is that good? Does this bring back... And I always wonder... Because I host this show, and I still... Whenever I get in front of these radio station mics, I have horrible flashbacks from every bad morning radio show that I've ever had to sit in on. Does Do you have flashbacks well i used to i used to be a dj at my college station so that's probably my biggest flashback how was that you know, i was sapphire steve carell that's what i called myself <laughs> what what kind of music was sapphire steve carell oh you know i'd play a little uh well i'd mix it up i i'd play everything from stevie wonder to steve winwood <gasps> to uh jethro tull all right you know, you're I like Jack it. FM. You were the future of radio, really. I, I, <laughs> like that playlist sort of thing, where it's like a randomizer. When I when I needed time, I you know maybe a little uh, stairway to heaven. Sure. Just, uh, to go to run to the bathroom run, or something. Or just go out and get a hamburger or something. <laughs> Come back. Oh, still on. All right, I'll go yeah. get dessert. Could you? Would you mind? Um, could you give us a little Sapphire Steve Carell? This is Sapphire Steve Carell coming to you on WDUB. 10-watt powerhouse. <laughs> hey, man, uh, I almost heard your show, but then I stepped But over. then I decided to sleep in because it's from 5 to 7 in the morning on a weekday. That's My slot was like, it was a college radio station. Nobody was up listening to it. Everyone was up, you know, no one gets up at 5 in the morning. You know, there were weird people. I did the overnight shift at K-Rock in the 90s. And it is the weirdest collection of people that will that will call in. There were weird people listening to your show. I'm sure. Well, perhaps. Just working on weird stuff. Get away with anything, though. I mean, we would. I would do little calls to my friends, and um, I wasn't very good at it. 
Clearly. I mean, as is evidenced by, by my honor personality here. <laughs> I like just halfway through, you're just going to break into Sapphire Steve without referencing it. Sapphire. Like, well, the only reason I did that was because I you had to intern under, when I was a freshman, you have to intern under a senior. Sure. And my senior mentor, his his handle was Diamond Doug McKinney. So as sort of a joke, I when he allowed me to go on, finally, I said, this is Sapphire Steve Carell. I'm so mad. So you're mocking me, dude. You're mocking me. There's only one gem in the bunch, Steve. <laughs> That's right. What? You're not a gem, dude. Why can't we all be? What else? We have rubies. We have... Uh, I feel like... I think the first time I ever met you, and I don't know if you remember this, but I was singing a song with my best friend Mike Furman about dinosaurs on the Jimmy Kimmel show. I do remember that. And you were on, and what I remember about it is that you started sweating. Oh, my God. I remember that. What do you, do you remember what it was that happened? I was so... It was the first talk show I'd ever done. Are you serious? In my life. That was the first time. It was when Anchorman was about to come out. And it's the first time I'd ever been invited on a talk show. And I had had the pre-interview, and you talk about the little story you're going to tell. And he set me up for the story, and I blanked. And I didn't, I tried to kind of stumble through it, but I couldn't tell it. And I was trying to remember what I'd said. And I broke out into a flop sweat <laughs> that, and it was just pure <laughs> nervous sweat. And it got to the point where Jimmy Kimmel had to stop and say, that's crazy how you look right now. You sweat more than anyone I've ever seen in my life. The best part about it, though, is because people knew who you were. I think everyone thought it was a bit. So it totally played off. Pro well, it, I tried to I tried to play it off as a bit. When, when they came back from commercial, I had actually doused my entire body with a <laughs> bottle of water to make it seem like a bit. But I... That was that was probably my worst experience. That was my broadcast news sweat experience. Well, that's so interesting because you had been you'd already been on what five seasons of The Daily Show by that point. I but I'd never done I never done any anything. Um, I, you know, it's 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 different. I guess being yourself. It's different going on a show and then having to be charming and engage in cocktail conversation essentially. And I wasn't good at it. I didn't know. I didn't know how to do it, and I was just super intimidated by the whole experience. Do you find that, um, because one thing, just sort of going back a little bit, I know you were at Second City, right? Right. Uh, with Colbert, you guys were there around the same time. Yeah. And so it's you guys are both perfect examples of, some, of people who, of comedians who, when you're in a scene... You're committed, and there's no wink to the camera. There's no, like, you are, you just, you become those characters, and you're totally committed. And so I wonder, for performers who are used to doing that, what's the adjustment period for having to just be yourself? Because obviously, if you just wanted to be yourself, you might be a comic, like a stand-up or something. It's Yeah, and, and neither of us were, were stand-ups. I, I don't have a bunch of jokes at my disposal, and I don't have bits to do and I don't have things that and I thought oh I'll I'll tell this charming story about my baby or whatever and it just, it felt it felt so flat and then then you feel like the audience isn't on your side and it's a very different experience tr just trying to be yourself and not playing any sort of character and I think eventually what you have to do I think what most people do is um present sort of a version of who they are not a real person, person right. in a way because i think there's a layer you know you sort of protect yourself and you don't want people to complete you know you don't want to reveal too much on one of those shows sure. but 
Um, and I, from there on, what I decided was, is that I wasn't going to necessarily try to hit any uh, plot points or story points about anything that we had predetermined to talk about. Because I, I just I feel like when I get locked in, it's well, it's like improvisation. I, I feel like as soon as you start predetermining anything and you try to hit that, yeah, that's you get out, you get in your head, and you can't even talk. So I, I just decided I'm gonna just be a lot, be looser with it, and not. That's worry. good. It's be it's easier, and I think the sort of the new the old the old school talk shows, it was like, and I think to some degree Leno might still be like this. Actually, that's the one show I've never done. Um, well, and Letterman, but but I think it's like he says this, and then you say this, and then he says this, and then you say this, and it right. feels like this is a scene. We're just doing a scene. Can we talk? It's it can feel that way, and and a lot of times they do loosen it up when and and when they go off the script, they when they go off of. You know, there are those beats they kind of want you to get to, and they want you to set up the clip of the movie. And so there is a structure to it, but I enjoy it when you just find things and they just happen naturally. Ferguson's great at that, and He's great Fallon that. and Conan, and yeah. yeah, they're all really fun. Yeah. Is it, does it weird to, I mean, you sort of get to the place that you're in, which is like, you know, when people think of like, who are the comedy stars? They're like, ah, Steve Carell. Is there a, is it a weird amount of pressure to every time I open my mouth, I have to be funny? Is there that sort of weird thing? Actually not, because I, I well, with that appearance, I set the bar so low <laughs> that, that I didn't, uh, I, anything was going to be better than that. And I, I decided also early on that I wasn't going to push too hard to really have some, some you know, swinging for the fences comedy bits on these shows, because I... I always, when I was growing up, I always liked watching Johnny Carson and those guys. And the, the best guests in my mind on the show were the people who just seemed like they were having a ball. And it was like, like when I'll never forget people like Steve Martin, people like Burt Reynolds would come on the show and it, it would be hysterical um, because they weren't trying too hard. They, it was just a conversation um, and it didn't seem pre planned. So that's kind of. So no, I mean to answer your question, I, I don't I don't feel I don't think people expect me to be funny necessarily in person because they know I'm not uh, a stand up in, in any way. So and I'm really not that funny. <laughs> I mean clearly. Um, so no, I, I don't I I don't really feel that pressure. I loved the Dana Carvey show, by the way. Oh God. I I absolutely loved that. I thought that show was so edgy for network television and like breaking fourth walls and ahead of its time. And uh, it's, I was so bummed out when that show got canceled because it was such, it was, I think it, I think the writing was on the wall from the very first episode, from the first scene. I think that show, the, the fate was sealed because if you remember the very, the very first scene was Dana as president Clinton um, revealing himself as the most nurturing president ever. And he opened his shirt uh, to display um, nipples, like eight <laughs> nipples. Like they, they had this lactating. Did you see that? I don't remember. If you go back and you can you can now buy the DVDs, but it's, it was like a, a a prosthetic chest piece that lac actually lactated, and they put puppies on the table and they started sucking <laughs> on these nipples on his chest, and the viewership. We were right after Home Improvement. <laughs> <laughs> the viewership, they actually charted it. It went from whatever, you know, an amazing viewership. And 
after that scene, it fell like to a quarter of of the audience. So, oh, that's such I a bummer. I loved it though. I loved the chances that they took. Robert Smigel was a head writer. Yeah, and Dana and Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. was one of the the chief writers on it, and Charlie Kaufman was wow. a staff writer. They had a great, great group of people on that show. There was. Uh... Skinheads from Maine. Oh, yeah. That's for now. Yeah. Never did care much for the Negroes. <laughs> <laughs> like, how are they saying this on television? I know. I know. It was like 8.30. Yeah. On a Thursday or something. Later on, well, this is the two guys <laughs> on the porch. Later on, we'll go bash the Henderson queer. <laughs> like, in those Maine accents. <laughs> that was, it was such, I feel like that show was so edgy. But, obviously, also, uh, really just kind of a... a these are all the comedy stars of the next 10 years, like everyone involved in that show. It was it was kind of a brain trust when you look back at it. Colbert you know, was on there, too. Yeah, he uh, he and I were both cast in that show. And and then from there, a year, a couple of years later, he was working on The Daily Show. And then we both both got jobs on The Daily Show. Um, so it, like we kind of followed each other. Were you friends that whole time, or would oh, you? Yeah, we we became friends in I think '88. We've been friends for a long, long time, um, and we we've performed. Yeah, I can I I really want to do something else with him. He's probably the smartest person I've ever met, as as well as one of the most talented. He can. He's a great actor. Obviously, I mean, he's playing a character, right? Seamless, nonstop, uh, nonstop. Which I, you know, when he told me the concept of of the Colbert Report, I. You know, I didn't know how he was going to pull it off, but he's done it. Um, so I, I just, I think he's, he also is a great musician. He's a really good singer, guitar player. He, he, I, he can kind of do anything. If you guys were going to do something together, would it be more in, would it be a film or do you think it would be a... I wouldn't even care. I would do, I would, anything, anything he would want to do, I would, I would jump in. I think he's the best. It is the, that... Those first handful of seasons from the Daily... I mean, obviously, The Daily Show is sort of... Now it's The Daily Show. Mm. But at the time, it was... I, I remember sitting in... Um, it's like 1995 or six or something. I was in New York, and I was meeting with Doug Herzog, who was one of the heads of Comedy Central at the time. And he was like, oh, we're, we're going to start this daily show. It's like this news. It's kind of like a daily... He just kept describing it as a daily show. And then it became The Daily Show... And then, uh, and then Craig Kilborn had his version of it. So to come in and just do a completely different version of the show that actually became what The Daily Show is, yeah. did you, uh, what was it like coming in at that point? I came in about six months after Jon Stewart had taken over. And uh, ironically, it was probably the best move I ever made career-wise to, to get on that show. Like the, the, one of the luckiest breaks I ever had. And, and I really owe it to Steven because he had been there uh, for about a year, I think, or less. And they were looking for new correspondence. People had left. And he's the one who recommended me to Madeline Smithberg, the producer, and to John. And they gave me a tryout. So I remember him calling me and saying, would you be interested in doing this? And it's, it's hard because you kind of, you kind of have to... Uh, to to uh, you, you have to get into a character and you have to play this character all day long and you have to basically trick people into thinking you're a reporter and uh, and it it's a it's a difficult thing to swing but because it's it's equal parts of 
improvisation and political satirism. And I mean, it, it, it was not anything that anyone could really be trained to do. You just kind of had to jump in with both feet and do it. And, uh, and, and it worked out. So I really owe, I owe him that. But at the time, the show had the show was sort of evolving too. It I think it started out much more cruel than it ended up being. Oh, without a doubt. And it I that was that was part of the difficulty that that I knew I was going to have going in because I didn't want to go in and just shoot fish in a barrel and make fun of people who really didn't deserve to be made fun that of. That had no idea that they were, yeah. They had no idea or weren't deserving of it. You know, just people who were eccentric or quirky or different. And I, you know, I think that should be celebrated rather than made fun of personally. And so my agenda on the show is to to put it on myself as that character of the correspondent and that I would make myself look like the idiot. Um, and... And that way, it would just sort of take the onus off of them. Um, so I, you know, and, and I think Stephen did the same thing. His reports, his field work, wa- was the best. He he, and he was very very brave. He went into some situations involving skinheads and neo Nazis, and he was fearless. He is pretty fearless. You really just have to. When he did the White House Correspondents Dinner, uh, <laughs> he since, I mean, that's in, that to me was inspirational because that you know whether you agreed with what he said or not, it was such a reflection of what we can do in this country to stand there five feet from the president, <laughs> look and him in the eye, completely diss him. That's you know that's pretty amazing that you can that, that there's a country with that level of freedom. Um, that you can get away with it, and uh, I don't have so, that fearlessness. I, 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 I'm, I'm more of the. Uh, I don't. I don't want you to feel bad. Please don't get mad at me. I, yeah, yeah. I, boy, you have to respect that, though. I, I, he's just great. Big fan. Were you when when you were because obviously the Daily Show is such a different show now because everyone knows what it is, but at the time you still sort of could trick people into thinking it was a news, like a real news show. You could. I remember the first, I guess it was the the, the 2000 um, primary. We went up to New Hampshire for the first Republican debate. And we, I don't know how we did, but we had credentials. We were in asking questions. And I remember we were asking McCain questions um, from Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> and, and he was the only candidate at the time that, Got they kind of got it that he, he there was he he registered what we were doing and he played along with it, which was kind of cool. The other, uh, most of the other candidates had no no clue and and tried to answer literally and you know uh, some some question about a Norwegian rock star <laughs> asked by this guy in a suit like w- they just looked bewildered. Um, but we we were definitely much more under the radar than they are now. Do you think? Uh- do you think it's good or are you sort of neutral about the shift that that show has taken in our culture to go from, from basically from being like a show that satirizes the news to being a show with a real point of view where people actually get their political news from the daily show? I think it's I think it's great because it's it's so it's so smart and it um and it's so consistently smart. That's what's amazing to me and it's um I think it's needed. I, I think I think shows like that are necessary and are brave and are different and have a point of view and uh, and don't don't back down. Um, 
and don't let people off the hook, which I, I think is... So th- it's like beyond entertainment value. There is, I think, a necessity for shows like that to exist. Yeah. And then, so from that, what, did you leave The Daily Show to do... Uh... 40-year-old virgin or did you was it around the time when it sort of no you let that was around the office time yeah it was it was before the office i really didn't have a job to go to and i it was very similar to me leaving the office i didn't have anything specific any agenda um but i just thought it was time to move on and and it, it was it was it was very similar it was a very similar scenario because it was a great show i loved it i loved the people on the show and there was really no reason to leave other than that I felt that it was time. Um, so, um, so yeah, so sometimes you just take a, a step into the darkness and see what happens. Are you, pretty, you obviously are pretty good with that if you are willing to do it. But do you, are, you, uh, are you pretty good with the business? Do you feel like you get insecure about stuff? Or do you feel like, well, whatever happens is going to happen? That's kind of how I try to approach it. Because... I've been so lucky, really. I mean, it's ridiculous how lucky I've been. And if it didn't go any further than this, I have all of that luck that I've, you know. But I don't know. I wouldn't. I mean, I think maybe your first break could be luck. But when you kind of do it time and time again, I think that's sort of, you know, the, 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 your skill set is taking you down a path where doors are opening because of all the work before token, people don't necessarily always want to see that you know there there may be a time where people are are tired of that or um you know the it it, things dry up you know careers ebb and flow and i i don't want to be that person who's clinging to anything i just i want to or or to try to reimagine who i'm going to be or to you know try to stay on top because i feel like if that's your agenda, then you're not, not enjoying it. And you're right. not kind of in the moment and having fun and cause it's fun. I mean, this is crazy what we get to do. It's just ridiculous. And, uh, and if you can't enjoy it as it, as it's happening, then it's kind of pointless. Well, I think there are definitely the two, this is an oversimplification. There are definitely the two camps of like, who wants to be famous who wants to just make stuff that they like? Right. And, you know, you look at guys like you and, and Will Ferrell and, and you go, they just make stuff. They, 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 it's obvious you see a script and you go, that looks fun. As opposed to, hmm, I really need to do a superhero movie next right. because that's what the market wants, you know. Well, yeah, exactly. I look at something and think, well, what, what demographic is going to enjoy this particular type right. of comedy? And. And, you know, when we did 40-Year-Old Virgin, there was no template for that. Like, on paper, I remember going back. I had shot 40-Year-Old Virgin, and I went back to a high school reunion. And, you know, people said, hey, what, what you up to? What are you doing? Oh, I just, I just shot this movie called 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I saw people's eyes rolling back <laughs> in their heads, and they thought, I know they felt sorry for me. Like, wow, end of his career. That's, that's, that's pretty sad. So you went right back after opening weekend, right? And be like, who's yeah, rolling your yeah. eyes oh, now? I, I, yeah, I wrote them all letters. You should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You spelled that out yeah. over and yeah. over again. No, I love to rub it in. <laughs> it, it, but, but, but on paper, something like that doesn't sound right. Or even to pitch it, like, who's going to go to see that movie? But... I think Will Ferrell's a great example. He, he does these beer commercials that only appear in the Midwest. Oh, right, yeah. And 
And I love that about him. He just does stuff for the fun of doing it. Well, funny or die. Like, the whole yeah. concept is like, well, let's just make... Why wouldn't we do this? Exactly. I, I really... I would love to absorb more of that attitude. And I don't know. I think it's just innate in some people just sort of have that, oh, whatever is fine. Sometimes I just feel like I've, I'm too crushed by this business for so many <laughs> years. To, or, even, or even it's sort of like, you know, seeing Louis, Louis C.K. on, uh, I don't know, Fallon or something. And he's like, oh, so, you know, you're you're the big comic. And he was like, yeah, for now. But just always, you're always like, but it's all going to come crap, you know, at well, some that's point. true. I mean, it is absolutely true. It's all going to end or change <laughs> at some point. It's not, it's, it, it's, just gonna, it's, that's, that's how it works. Um, so you can't, you can't get weirded out if it does change. Well, with 40 year old virgin, uh, it, it's hard enough to make a movie. It's hard enough to make a movie that then is good. And then it's hard enough to make a good movie that's a comedy. Like, there are so many places where a movie can fail. Sure. So with 40-Year-Old Virgin, what was the, what was the, how, how did, what was the process of it? And was there, you know, how much, you know, improv and how much, how did you guys know? I pitched the idea to Judd and he liked it immediately. And he, he knew as a producer that he could sell that idea to Universal. And... We wrote it over a summer. We handed it in on a Friday, and it was greenlit on a Monday. It was really fast. The whole process of, and and it was the first time I'd ever been involved with that. So I thought, oh, this is, I guess, the way it happened <laughs> all the time. That I, you know, you write it and they make it, and that's not necessarily how it goes. Um, but there was a. He's so smart. He's such a good director, and he and he's just so funny that we had the script, which was in good shape, but he, he always threw stuff in. And, and we hired people who were good improvisers who could add um, Jane Lynch. All of her stuff was improvised. You know, we had the script, but almost everything she said was her. And we actually transcribed how she auditioned, and most of that is in the movie, too. Oh, you know, wow. You just hire really talented people, and they make you look good. Well, and that's, that's a much different philosophy and I think a better philosophy other than the you know there are people who are like well I have to be the funniest person in the scene and I have to be you know like there's people who are more concerned about themselves than people who obviously care about comedy and I think when you care about comedy it doesn't matter who in the room has the best idea you go you go with that and maybe that's I maybe that's a second city thing for you uh I, I well I just figure the the movie's going to be better if everybody has equal chance to be funny and it's not because it doesn't rest on any one person. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That, that's how I like to work. And, um, and, I, and I think people, you know, like this last movie I did, people like James Gandolfini, who's not necessarily known as a comedic actor, is great because he just felt comfortable and free to do whatever he wanted to do and supported. And he's a great improviser. He just goes with it. And because he's a good actor to begin with. I mean, great actor. Um, but I think pe when people feel like they're supported and we're all in this together and there's no one person who's carrying it, I, I think that emboldens people to, you know, to, to step up and to, to play around. Well, Anchorman was like, the, there are movies for me throughout my comedy evolution. There was like, you know, there was the jerk and then Caddyshack and, you know, then jumping to the 90s, then Wayne's World, and then Anchorman was another one of those movies where you go, oh, man, 
a bunch of funny people just got together and they fucked around and then just cut it together and then that was the movie. It's that's basically what it was. And we just went back. We're, we're starting. I think they're starting today. Principal photography. I start in a couple of weeks. Sweet on Anchorman too. Sweet. It is. It. It is such a funny script, and I know it'll be twice as funny than the script is at this point because Adam McKay. I'm mean, very much like Judd. He just lets things go. He prompts even more ridiculous things to be improvised. Um, but it's. It actually makes sense as a sequel. It. It's a very smart, silly script. There's there's some some depth to it, um, but it's I, I think it's I think they did a really good job with it. I think it'll, it's going to turn out well. I'm glad that you know. Usually, when you hear you know when someone says oh they're going to make a sequel to this, then you kind of go oh, why? But Anchorman is definitely one of those movies that when you you know when I would talk to people like like Will Ferrell was on a bunch of people on Twitter were like oh, we want to hear about Anchorman too. Like people just want to see more it's more it is more of what it was because it's all the same people i mean everybody is Keckner and paul rudd everybody and christina applegate it's all it's the same group of people it's the same creators it's you know it it it, it and it feels the same on on set and when we did the table read and the we did camera tests it just it it was like 10 years ago that we shot the first one. And if it's eerie how similar it feels. Like everyone is just right back into it. I would imagine, particularly with a movie like that, that it's you can't get too precious about any of the jokes because obviously it's going to have to get cut down to 90 minutes. But there's probably so much stuff that, that, there, that, that you have to play around with, like, Oh yeah, I guarantee the first cut of this movie will be four or five hours. Long. <laughs> it, it just, I get people would watch that, by the way. Well, I think I think Paramount is probably aware of that too. And this day and age, they can give you all sorts of different cuts and director cuts. And at the flip of a switch, you know, they can they can add forty minutes to a movie if they if they choose to. So in this in this digital era, um, but it's there's going to be a lot that you can art even in the stuff that we're we're playing around with in rehearsal you can just feel it expanding and people finding new things i mean just after a couple of days so it'll it's gonna be a good one how did you with anchorman did you figure out the character right away or did you guys play around a little bit and you're like no this is this guy it was just sort of what it was i mean i i think we all kind of understood (laughs) who brick was uh he's kind of a blank slate and and will remain so, uh, uh, you know. It it just I didn't really have any dialogue in the first one, and the dialogue that ended up in the movie, generally speaking, were times that Adam McKay would say, "Steve, just just say something." <laughs> At the end of the scene, just say a, just say a sentence, and it doesn't even matter if it relates. Um, so that's, I think, that's how Brick came about. I don't know if most people would really understand what you were talking about before. I'm like, oh, this is how movies always get made. But it really was, I think, from the just kind of with a basic understanding of how the film business works, it was a bit of a risk to put you in a starring role to carry a movie. Like, the film industry doesn't always... First of all, they don't know what's going on on television. Like the biggest television star in the world and the film industry could be like, who is what? What, what is this yeah. now? Because it's just a whole different set of metrics and a whole different. So uh, did you did they pretty much leave you guys alone? No, not at all. We the plug was pulled after. I, I want to say 
it, it maybe six days of shooting. They we were in the middle of shooting a scene, and we got a call, and Judd came out and pulled me aside and said, "There, we have to shut down. Universal is pu- Universal's pulling the plug, and we have to go in and talk to the executives, you and I, right now." And we just in the middle of a day, I think it was a Thursday, we shut down, and everyone went home. And uh, Judd and I went in to talk to the executives, and they were freaked out because all they had seen were scenes of me riding the bike around <laughs> and scenes of me walking down the street looking at posters of women with, you know, you, you know shapely women. In, you know, it, we had done just some preliminary scenes so far and hadn't gotten into the story. So they were freaked out. They just thought it was a creepy middle-aged guy who rode a bike around, and they, they didn't. They weren't seeing it, and they got jittery. Um, and we we tried to assuage their fears, and we they let us start shooting on Monday. And uh, we really didn't cha- we didn't change anything. We just kind of tried to let them know where we were headed. And I think they brought another kind of set of eyes from from their ranks to to keep an eye on us. And he became our greatest ally. He, he got it immediately, what we were going for. So it was nice to have him as sort of a buffer. He would report back to the studio and say, they're, they're on it, they're doing great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the case. But nothing changed, and, uh, and, and we were able to finish it up. Well, comedy's sort of, you know, you have stu- some stu- studio people, which are, they're largely marketing people. If they were particularly funny, they probably would have pursued careers in performing. Um, trying to understand comedy and really the the best thing they can do is just, well, let's trust the people that we hired. If we hire yeah. funny people, maybe if we don't fully get it, they obviously are funny. They know what they're doing. I think you're right. I think the best the best executives that way are the ones um, and 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 various executives have said exactly this. I don't personally get it but i get that people will get it or that i under i trust what you're doing and um you know and to to embrace it and uh and and you know and trust somebody like judd who's who's an incredibly funny guy and and now they do but it took a little bit of time to get to that point how involved in the creative process i mean you know, you do bigger movies, you'll do smaller kind of indie films. You, like, how, how involved in each of the films are you? Uh, depends on whether it's something we're producing. Um, Crazy Stupid Love, I was involved from beginning to end, from rewrites to casting, uh, choosing directors, all of that. Um, um, but, but other movies, I'm much more of, like Hope Springs, I'm just hired, I go in and do my scenes, and I try not to get in the way. Uh, so I think it just depends on, on what film it is. You don't strike me as a tortured actor type. You strike me as a kind of guy who like, yeah, I go to work and then I go home and I'm, you know, with my family and everything. Yeah. I mean, you can't, once it's there, once you do it, you can't really worry too much about it. You, you can, well, if you're producing and you can have a say in the final outcome, um, that's one thing, but but generally speaking, as an actor, you just do the best you can and hope, hope that it works out, you know, hope that you did a decent enough job. Um, but you can't, no, you can't stress. And actually doing The Office, 
we do so many scenes. We would, we would do every day 10 to 12 pages of dialogue, and you couldn't be precious about anything because you had another 12 pages to do the next day, and you didn't really think twice about it, um, which I think is helpful when you don't get too precious about every little tiny moment. Well, I feel like the audience reads that. Like with comedy, whether or not you're precious about your comedy, you don't ever want the audience to think you're precious about your comedy because right. then that's when they're like, ah, fuck you. Right. I see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're working too hard. Exactly. You're trying to make You need me to like you, which I don't. Now I don't want to like you. Right. Yeah. It's like dating. It's like you don't want to go out with someone who's really into you. You want that era of that, that aura of, you know, little mystique there. Yes. Little reserve. Pre-selection, mm-hmm. I think they call it. <laughs> this person is wanted by other individuals. I therefore want them too. Exactly. But if they want me, then there must be a reason they're trying to dump their dirty DNA mm-hmm. inside me. Something's wrong with them. I don't know why I just took the role of the lady in that scenario. I don't know either. That was really weird. It's interesting. And my legs are crossed hmm. in a very specific way. I wasn't going to say that. <sighs> I have a lot of things I need to work out, Steve. When you uh, When you're looking at a new project is it sort of weird that you can was it weird when you got to the point where you're like i, I guess i can kind of pick whatever i want yeah i mean I, I don't i don't even feel that way now um but it was well when i went in to uh warner brothers the first time that ever happened was when i went into warner brothers to talk about get smart and i thought that i had been invited to go in an audition for maxwell smart and I walked in, and it was a conference room. And I thought it would be an audition space with a camera, and you, you go up and you read your lines. And I had my little briefcase with my headshots and my resume, and um, but I hadn't been given any script or sides. I didn't, I didn't have any, so I thought it would be a cold reading in front of a casting person. But I walked in, and it was, it was all the executives from Warner Brothers, and I sat down. And I remember they said, well, we want to do Get Smart. We'd like you to play Maxwell Smart. And I, that's when my head just sort of unhinged and everything <laughs> blew out the top. So you want me to read for this? Yeah, I had no, and, you know, trying to play it off and be cool. Like, oh, that's great. Thank you so much. But I, you know, I'm sitting there with my head shot between my hands. And I, it was, that was, that was sort of a, a stunning turn of events i'll never forget that moment and you know which is not to say that it's it's not going to happen again but that was that was very unusual for me to to actually have been offered something i remember your monologue from on snl after 40 year old virgin which i think was a song about like I'm in the twenty million dollar club or something, or oh it was yeah, like, I have money coming out of my ass. Yeah, 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 stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, but then I had also read other stuff about you where you were like, look, and and by the way, I I happen to agree one hundred percent when you're like, listen, someone's going to get that money. It's going to go to the studio, or it's going to you know like why shouldn't the performers you know because I there's almost a weird, and I don't think you've suffered from this at all. I think actually our culture has been pretty pretty cool with it now but just the idea of like well once you start paying someone a lot of money i don't know they're just not a real person anymore it's like why but what are we working for then what is the what well is- you know there i've met a lot of very very nice wealthy people too i i don't think it and i've met a lot of jerks who are wealthy and um i i you know sometimes get asked well are you different you know has it changed you and uh i i i don't 
know. I think, you know what? I, I think it's more, uh, the, the questions, I guess, more relate to success. And, um, you know, would it have been different had I, because it was, it was later in my career. I was like 40 years old when I, when I really had a, a higher degree of success. And had it happened when I was 18, it might have been a different story. I might have turned into a huge jerk because I don't know. I, I don't remember how mature I was at that point, like whether I was capable of of dealing with it in, in a in a mature way. The odds are strikingly against you if you're 18 and all of a sudden you. I, I think, you know, so I, I guess in that sense, I was lucky because I was happily married and I had kids. And so my priorities were in order in that respect. So it's not that I, I wasn't looking for it. It, I, I, it's not like that was a, an ultimate goal of mine and it just sort of happened. Um, but I did, but it didn't, but it didn't alter what was truly important to me. What do you what do you define as success? Like, what do you think? Is there a thing that you feel like you still haven't achieved, or is it just the ongoing, like, yeah, just have fun and work? That well, yeah, that was really it. Uh, to me, success was being able to be employed as an actor and support myself. That that's what all I was gunning for when I got into it, and not anything beyond that. And to be able to get married and have kids and support them and send them to college, you know, that's. That was my ultimate goal. That, that to me was was being a, a success. So, this is all the other stuff is just ridiculous. That's that's winning the lottery. That's you know, that's that's beyond success. That's like a fantasy world. Because sometimes you sometimes you think it's a dream, and I'll I'll sit there with my wife and we'll look at each other like, how did this happen? This is not. It's certainly nothing we aspired to. It's not what we were gunning for or anticipating in any way so you know we just we just try to enjoy it but uh but also not take it too seriously well that's good it's hard it's and it's very hard not to i mean i I, again i think you're lucky in the sense that you just have it sounds like you have a fairly healthy brain because even (laughs) i see i see you know most people work really hard and they think like well i'm broken inside but there's this thing and when i get it then i'll be fine and oh i got it but i'm not fixed in any way and then they start to get freaked out that oh my god i got a little bit of success what if i lose it right and then it just you know yeah no i think that can be a slippery slope i feel like i had it before any of this stuff happened i mean i i was really content and happy with my life before I became successful. Um, so I, you know, and I know I, ha- I will always have that. So it's, that's a really reassuring aspect to life. What is your secret? It must be a good family. You must have good parents. I, you know what? I have great parents and I got really lucky with who I married. You know, that's the other thing. You get these questions. What's the secret to a successful marriage? I, that I do think is luck. I think if you end up marrying the right person, then you're set because people who can evolve and change and change with you and grow with you and uh, you with them, that's, I just, you know, we really synced up that way. And uh, so. Your wife was an improviser as well, right? Yeah, she was on SNL. Yes. So you guys, there's a, it's uh oh, wait a sec. So there's a lot of there's a lot of relationship yes ending going on that's working out very well. Yeah, no, she's a good ensemble player. She really is. She's great. She and she is really funny. 
Um, and I think that's that's part of it too. We make each other laugh, which is nice. That's I mean, for a comedian to be with someone else, I mean, that's just I feel like that's just how that's how we communicate. And if someone can make you laugh, then it's instant. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you've you've dated people that don't necessarily make you laugh, and it's it's a, it's horrible. I mean, it's not not any long term. I mean, I've no, been on dates either. with people, but but my last. But my la- and I, you know, and I'm I'm sort of a long term relationship guy, so I've sort of gone from, you know, relationship. I'm very I'm I'm, I'm a monogamous relationship guy, and so I haven't really I haven't really dated for, I don't know, like nine years or something. But I but I do remember, going being on a couple dates with like, oh, you're a you're a norm, you're a regular, like you don't, I crack jokes and then you just go, huh. right, or you don't add anything, you know, that's very hard, or. Or they crack jokes and you think, I can't, I can't be with this person. <laughs> I remember one, one woman that I went out with for a little while. This was, this was her, maybe her, her best attempt at a joke. She saw a homeless person on, as we were driving. And she turned to me and she said, huh, I didn't know your brother was in town. What? What does that even mean? I don't like, know what that means. I didn't. I mean, it was offensive on so many different levels, and I, I thought, wow, I've, I've been kissing this person. This is not good. I, this must end. That's how you know when you're when you're when comedy is your true calling. When a bad joke can make you go, this is really not. No, I have to get out of the car. That's a deal ender. When did you guys? Uh, did you and your wife, Nancy, right? Yeah. Did you meet in uh, doing improv together? We met. I I was her teacher in Chicago at Second City. <laughs> well, I know. I scammed on a student. I guess she passed. Nice. Oh, Dave, she with flying colors. <laughs> <laughs> Your journey is not complete yet. <laughs> so this exercise is: I'm going to marry you, and we're going to have kids <laughs> and spend a lot of years together. Yes, and yes. <laughs> You're, good. The You're good. You're <laughs> good. What do you think is the key to a good um what what do you think is the key to good improv uh listening i think that's it i i think and just not predetermining what you're going to say i mean it goes back to that that jimmy kimmel experience i was trying to predetermine everything i was going to do and i got locked up and i just can't my brain doesn't work that way and I'm, i'd much rather just go with it and and listen to what he's saying and try to stay in the moment so um yeah, and not trying to be funny. And that was one of the big things at Second City. You don't come out there with a bunch of jokes in your back pocket. You try to create a scene and and commit to a character. And, um, you know, there there are various tricks and, and kind of structures to it, but I, I would say listening is the most important part of it. It's, you know, I've many times had the conversation on this show about stand-up versus improv, but it always seems to boil down to stand-up is very, by its nature, selfish because you're sort of in charge of everything yourself, and improv is very much communal, mm-hmm. and that you can't be selfish. And when you when you try to be selfish in an improv scene, it just falls apart. You know what? I look at, because I'm not a stand-up, but I, I, I don't look at stand-up comedy that way i see it as extremely brave because you don't have a bunch of other people to rely on on stage or people to bail you out which i think is a lot of improv like i i'm i'm dying i am so dying oh thank god amy sedaris just came out on stage 
dressed as a rabbit, you know, it like that just that just saved my ass. That's, you know, or Stephen Colbert comes out with a guitar and starts improvising a song. Thank you, God. But but when you're out there by yourself, I just don't have the balls to do anything like that. I don't feel like I have that kind of muscle to you're really, you know, you're a storyteller and you're a you're a master of ceremony and you're you're captivating an entire audience by yourself, which I think takes a uh, takes a skill set um, that is it's just different. I don't I don't look at it as selfish. I look at it as just a like a like a magical power almost. <laughs> really, I mean to be able to do that. I because I love watching stand up and I and I love laughing and um, it's just nothing I could ever do. Um, but I I respect it so much. I would. Are there any tapes anywhere of those old improv? Days. Oh yeah, I'm sure they they used to videotape shows, you know, sort of the grainy bad videos. But uh, well, we went back for a reunion at Second City a couple of years ago, and Stephen and I did a scene that we had done, you know, way back when we were performing there. So that was fun to go back and sort of reconnect with people, friends. Did you guys tour at all as a Second City group? Yeah, yeah. I started in the touring company, and then I got into one of the resident companies, and you, you work your way up from there. What were the What were the touring shows like? Touring shows, they were a. You did a little bit of improvisation, but they were mostly reviews that were cobbled from the archives of Second City. They would take the best, you know, the 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 most classic scenes, and then you would recreate them, and it was really fun because we. We were all young, and we'd go to colleges, and invariably we'd invite the audience to go drinking with us after the show. So it was kind of, it was kind <laughs> of that, you know. Um, that was, and that was really, really fun, and and getting to do these very classic scenes that might have been created by Belushi or Alan Arkin or Bill Murray, you know, these great improvisers um, who had come up with the scenes years before. Have you? Well, first of all. In, I saw Burt Wonderstone, and uh, it was the movie's super fun. But Alan Arkin is Ugh. every time that guy's on screen, it's just there's something about Alan Arkin. He's he is just talk about being in control. He is he doesn't have to do anything, <laughs> and and people are watching him. He's um, yeah, he's he's an idol of mine. He's somebody that I always always idolized growing up you know the in-laws the russians are coming he's um he's a pretty spectacular actor and and we share he was in i think one of maybe the second cast at second city oh yeah he was like he's like proto improv yeah yeah he was exactly and i so we have that in common the second city experience and and he's become a friend of mine which i think is oh that's so nice i know i'm i'm very proud i mean he was like he was like like doing improv with like Nichols and May yeah. era. Yeah. Oh yeah. They started. I, I I mean there obviously must have been. I don't know what the actual throughout history history of improv is, but at least for contemporary improv, he was around that era with those guys. Are like, what if we just made stuff up on stage? Yeah. What do you think the rules of that would be? I, it was a completely <laughs> new form, and they just kind of came up with it. And I mean, talk about because now it's a thing. Now everybody knows what it is and takes classes and uses it in TV and movies. I mean, it's it's a uh, 
you know, it's kind of an acting tool and a form. But back then, I don't even, I can't imagine how experimental this must have seemed to people. Did you work with Del Close at all? Uh, no, I kind of, he was there at the very beginning of my time, but I never took a class with him. I, I never actually worked with him. I, uh, I, I, I took a little bit of Groundlings like years ago. And I think I, I realized like, nah, I'm just not, I'm not really a, like I, I, if I'm, I can think of stuff fast to say in a conversation or something, but in a scene, I just feel too much like, oh, I'm going to fuck this up for everyone. Like, I just don't have the. I, I bet you were great. I, no. I, I bet you're being no. self-deprecating. No. no, I'm being justifiably self-deprecating, <laughs> which is why I stopped, which why I stopped doing improv. And then I remember just being shouted at by, uh. The 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 teacher who was like, stop trying to crack jokes. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just want everyone to like me. Like, that's such a bad place to come from when you're doing comedy, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you don't want to be afraid to take risks. Exactly. Yeah. And if you have people saying don't do that and and laying all these rules on you, that's the other thing. When you there's you can give people a structure, but you can't once if you can't negate everything they do, you you have to support what they do, too. Here, I, you're the perfect person to talk about this with because I've never really been in this situation. So I have ideas about what I think it is. But Emmys, Oscars, like such weirdly unnatural environments to the, put people up and then they have to do the patter mm -hmm. and they have to do when you're doing that kind of stuff. Do you go, well, I'll just play around with something or do they give you stuff or how does it how does it? Oh, presenting. Yes, that is. It seems like such a horrible. Well, first of all, hosting anything like that just feels very scary. like a no win situation. Oh, yeah. But with presenting, what how um, it depends on uh, they, they generally let you uh, take a pass or, or tweak stuff. Um, and, and it depends on how something is written in the first place. Like Will Farrell and I did this thing at the Oscars um, where we were presenting the award for best makeup design. So they didn't, they had something, some banter between us. And I pitched to Will that we just both go out there dressed in the most horrible makeup that I think he wore. He got really, really tan. Like he looked orange. <laughs> and I almost put on white face and like false eyelashes and but play it completely straight and just do a really straight intro. Like these people are artists. They make us look their best. Um, you know, and and just let the visual of that play against what we were saying. And uh and you know, it it played okay, but it it it's scary as hell. When you see people that you you think are the coolest cucumbers in the world backstage freaking out that they're going to go out and do a, a presentation that makes you start to worry. Like <laughs> I don't want to see Meryl Streep b breaking a sweat because she's, she's the queen, but the fact that she's nervous, oh, I, I'm I should be petrified if she's got the butterflies. Well, it's interesting because so many of those actors, no, you know, no one, they don't really audition for stuff anymore. No. And so that, having to be in that situation where it's like you have one shot at this right and everyone's watching right and if you fuck it up you're you're going to hear about it oh yeah and everyone's <laughs> waiting to criticize you <laughs> it's so and, bad. And, and, and and the host too i mean that like you said is a thankless job because no matter how well you do, someone's going to hate your guts for doing it. Well, yeah, because you have, and, I'm, and it was very relieved to hear that Tina Fey said, I will never host the Oscars, I will tell you right now, because, yeah. 
you know, particularly for that. I think the Tonys seem fun because it's, you know, they're really, they're hardcore theater people. And they, and even though they might take that seriously, it's fun for them to be acknowledged in that way. So it's like a party and they seem to be enjoying it. With the Oscars, you have a bunch of film people who I think a lot feel like it's a step down to be doing television, first of all. Right. And so there's a million different egos at play. And with the comedy, you know, a friend of mine who was, I think, writing some jokes for the Oscars, it said, it's impossible because everything has to be cleared with this person's publicist and that person's publicist and the studios. And so it just there's so much fear involved and yeah. not upsetting anyone right. that what you're left with is this sort of like rocky in between. No right. one seems comfortable kind of show. Well, I'll tell you, I think that Amy, um, uh, Amy Poehler and Tina did a great job with the Golden Globes. And I. I don't think they I don't think anyone could do better than what they did. Right. They struck a chord somehow. They they walked that line between being gracious and being uh not even offensive, but but giving the industry a gentle ribbing and and what was inspiring to me about it was that I saw them do stuff that I'd never seen at award shows. That having a fake nominee in the audience, <laughs> when you see something like that, you think, why hasn't anyone ever done that before? It's a great, great move. And it's inspiring. You think, oh, there stuff can be original and different and and funny. And um no, I I I think they set the bar really high. But I and I don't get there's no sense at all with Amy and Tina that you, f again, where you feel like, oh, they really need me to like them. Like, they just have fun, and they screw around. A friend of mine who worked on the Golden Globes said Amy was talking about their opening monologue, and she said, so, yeah, the monologue's eight, but when you add laughs, uh, five. You know, like, they were just fucking around the whole time. Yeah. No, and that's, and that's why people like them so much, because they didn't, it didn't seem like they were trying to please anyone. They were just being themselves. Would you ever want to host it? Would you ever host the Oscars? I, I, that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, again, I just don't think it's a no win situation. And I admire anyone who can go and have the guts to do something like that, but I don't think that would be for me. Literally, the second you walk on stage, people are already like, "This is the worst Oscars ever!" Like, uh, what? Give the guy a chance. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. And Seth tried to kind of diffuse that by incorporating that into the the opening. Right. And um, you know, and I'm and I'm sure he got backlash for that. So you know. But it was dumb. It's like, okay, so he did the boob song, and then some people were like, "How could he?" And you're like, "Did you not look at anything he did before the Oscars? Like, there is an entire body of work right. that would inform you that something like that might happen. Yeah. What is the surprise? Well, I think by the same token, when Stephen Colbert went to do the correspondence dinner, they clearly didn't take a look at his body of work <laughs> before they invited him. <laughs> this is outrageous what he said about our president. That's what he does. Yeah. You know, he's a super smart political satirist and you know you think he's gonna to dumb it down it's you know that wasn't gonna happen if anything he stepped up his game for that night but i think by i think it was the same thing they underestimated who they were inviting uh to the party well i think they just got they got super caught up in Ah, the kids love this guy whenever mm -hmm. there's the kids love this guy right. so we should get him for our thing they're like what what just happened? You're like, well, <laughs> you got someone that the kids love, and that's what the kids love. So what? 
<laughs> Why would you be puzzled by this development? I'm not a kid. I'm not a kid. I just want what they love. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Well, could we bring him in and just dub him? I just... <laughs> with what we're saying? <laughs> they dub in Colbert. <laughs> Mr. President, you're doing an excellent job. It's just like, it just sounds like some senator. <laughs> just dub it in. Yeah, I don't know. It's so, it's, it's, so, it's so shocking to me that, you know, and, you know, again, the Oscars, it just feels like it takes itself so seriously. I mean, obviously, I know it's, you know, it's it's a hard work. I don't like I'm not an actor. I don't really enjoy that. I'm sure I know it's not easy to throw yourself into a role and try to shake the emotional residue off at the end of the day. I think that'd be tough for anybody. But when you're up on, you know, when when that shows a presentation like everyone, this is the most important thing uh, yeah. ever. And you're welcome. <laughs> you know, like, I it's think it could heavy, have a little more fun. I I go into those as a heady experience. I, I mean, I, I underestimated what they would feel like. And the, uh, yeah, they, they felt very serious when I went and walking, walking the red carpet. It, it, you know, there is, uh, there is something about it that, uh, I wasn't prepared for. There is a, a pomp and circumstance to it all. Um, that, you know, it's, it's the type of thing you go to and you just don't feel like you are of that world that, you, you know, you and your wife are all dressed up looking around, asking yourself, how, why are we here? Do you think this everyone is, feels that way? Probably to a certain extent. I, I, and I think some people hide it to varying degrees of success. Some people just feel like they're born. I mean, some people look like they are, you know, you look at the nonchalance with, which somebody like George Clooney purports himself. It's, it's, he's so, he's so great. I mean, to meet him and to talk to him, he, um, he just sort of glides through experiences like that. And who knows, maybe he feels as out of place as everybody else, but he has a, just a, a sense of style and confidence that, um, you know, I think he'd be a great host because he, he is, He's somebody that everybody likes, everybody respects, and he and and I think he brings that that sense of I don't have anything to lose, I don't have anyone to impress. I'm I'm a fun, funny, talented guy and and welcome to the party. Um I I think someone like that would be great at it. I saw an interview with Gene Wilder once and he was talking about when he met Cary Grant. Cary Grant had just seen Silver Streak. And he says to him like I really love that film you made there. I mean, you take a regular Joe like you or me and put him into a crazy situation. <laughs> and he's like, you or me? Yeah. Fucking Cary Grant. <laughs> yeah, the average the average guy. That's Just right the, the regular street. Joe. Yeah, sure. Right yeah. atop the, the, the entertainment food chain. Yeah, I mean, there are guys like that that are just so, so elegant, you can't believe it. And, uh, and it's not an act. Um, so two more things that I want to ask you about. I certainly want to talk about Burt Wonderstone before we let you go, which people should go. So that opens Friday? Uh, the 15th. The 15th. March oh, March 15th. 15th yes. Um, but uh, did you – I always like to ask people about their SNL auditions. You must have auditioned for SNL at some point. Did. You never did? No. I never did. I, uh, my wife did – I actually – there a bunch of people auditioned right after I had left Second City. I was gone for about six months. And then SNL came through and, you know, there was a whole plane load of people that went out from Second City to audition. My wife, Dave Koechner, were the two that got it mm -hmm. from that group. 
Um, but no, I never. I always wanted to, but I never got to audition. Um, did you? Uh, are you okay over there, Kyle? No, I, what happened? Uh, got a little throat the, tickle. The wrong pipe. Oh, buddy! Right. Did you just choke on your own swallowing? A little bit, yeah, actually. What happened? Do we need to hook you up to a machine? Maybe. Okay. I'm sad. I'll, I'll give you. My residue fear of the idea of a Saturday Night Live audition <laughs> is so powerful <laughs> that it creates a <laughs> can't breathe. Makes me choke empathetically. I think if you can be okay with. The SNL audition to me always sounds like shows that I did early on in stand-up where you would go and there would be two people in the audience and you would know there, there's not going to be a huge reaction. And as long as you're okay with that, right. you'll be okay. Yeah, you're going to get nothing. But there are about 100 or 200 people watching you from an NBC feed uh, in New York and in Los Angeles. That's the other side of it. There are a couple people in the audience. But they're taping you, and it's a live feed to people all over the place who are judging you. But it's a real test of comedy metal because if you, if you can survive in the coldest possible audition environment, you'd probably be okay on the show. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm sure that's that's part of it. That that show is is so well structured, and it's a machine. It is just a, in, in the best sense, it's. It's a well-oiled machine, I think, from how they choose people to the show itself um, to how they integrate the guest host into the show. I've, I've guest hosted a couple times, and to, to be a part of that, you know, you're not, you're not accustomed to that sort of experience. No one is. But the way they kind of glide you through and they get you dressed and they put you up on stage and they have the cue cards and they point to it and they, they make it as... as uh, as easy as it could be for for a host to kind of get you through and to not, you know, people don't necessarily freak out when they're on that show. They're just along for the ride. Well, that's good. It always, it, my one, uh, my recurring nightmare is that I'm hosting SNL and I've not gone to any rehearsals and the show's on and I'm staring at cue cards and I don't know what I'm supposed to, that's, that's my naked in class dream. There, you know what? The second time I hosted, literally backstage, 15 seconds before they did the opening, they said, oh, we, we changed a bunch of your lines on that third <laughs> scene, so just be sure to read the cards, and you're written in red. So you like the light goes on, and you're reading these lines for the first time in red and hoping you don't screw up on live TV. So it's exciting, though. All you want to do is take a nap afterward. You're so exhilarated, but when it's over... You, you feel like you're coming off of something. Oh, yeah, because you just had a massive brain baby. Oh, you just <laughs> you Yeah, the just... adrenaline coursing <laughs> through your body, and then you feel like I, everything just stopped. Yeah. My, yeah, everything just turns off. Or is your, your company, is, uh, are, you, are you producing a lot of stuff at the moment? We, um, we're producing, well, we produced Crazy Stupid Love. Mm -hmm. We produced uh, Burt Wonderstone. We're producing this movie that we're going to shoot this fall with uh, Tina Fey and I called uh, Mail Order Groom. Awesome. Be really funny. And uh, we have a TV show called um, Inside Comedy mm -hmm. on Showtime. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. You know, it's, it's David Steinberg interviewing the, the greats, uh, you know, the, the sort of the legends of comedy, the people who are coming up in comedy. And uh, it's an interesting show. It's a, it's a really nice one-on-one. -on -one. Are you are you a sort of a comedy nerd in that way? I like you know what I I grew up listening to records and I I'm a fan I just 
and I like finding out about the people. And it's not, it's not a, a show that deconstructs comedy. It's not them talking about why they're funny. It's more about who they are and who their inspirations were, um, and and what what they think is funny. Um, so when you have people like Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks on a show together, it's just it's a historical record, if nothing else. And um, I think this next episode is Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin. Oh, my God. So we, get, we have a lot of really fantastic people. All of me still show. holds up. It does. That performance. It's great. He's, yeah, he's one of my idols, too. I wonder why. It's just unfortunate that comedy doesn't really, you know, going back to the Oscars, that comedy doesn't really get what it deserves. That I, I'm just like, if comedy is like, well, but it's, that's silly. It's not like a dramatic role. Like, right. yeah, but fucking comedy, like good comedy is so hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not, it doesn't necessarily register with, uh, with award shows, but, um, and I guess, well, I don't know if the last comedy to, to win, maybe Annie Hall. Um, I'm not sure. I guess it was. It, it's been a while. Uh, so Burt Wonderstone, which comes out March 15th. Uh, Speaking of Academy Awards. Which is, <laughs> cast your ballots now. Is that how it works? There's a voting station that you could just go to. That's right. Make sure you're registered. <laughs> Make sure you're registered in your district. That's right. Stop by, register. Uh, but uh, great cast. You and Bu- Buscemi. Do we say Buscemi or Buscemi? I think it's really Buscemi. It really is. says Buscemi. Even I say Buscemi, but I think he says Buscemi. I don't think he knows. I, he's, I think he's heard it so many different ways. Hasn't he, he seen how it's spelled? It should be Buscemi. That's, well, I will give you his number. You can, can we just call him and just clear, clear, <laughs> clear it up with him a little bit? But you guys and, uh, and Jim Carrey and James Gandolfini and Olivia Wilde, yeah. who's, uh, who's really great. Olivia Wilde, I, I hope she does more and more comedy stuff. She's really funny. She auditioned for this. Which I don't think she generally does these days, and um, I she's what was great about her audition is she didn't try to be funny. She just played a character, and it was really funny because she was going through something as that character. And uh, she's really smart and intuitive, very good improviser. Yeah, I think she's she's got a career ahead of her. That one. Uh, yeah, she's gonna be. I think she's I, gonna be okay. I think she'll do okay. I think she's gonna do all right in this yeah. business. This, of course, will be the Academy Award winning performance yeah, oh yes. that will drive Definitely. Everything. I disappear into this character. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> because then Alan Arkin, of course, is oh, in it as fantastic. well. Yeah, it's funny. You know, it's, I wanted to do sort of a big, silly, fun movie. Um, everybody has a wig. It's, it's a world I'd never seen before uh, in the Vegas magicians. And... Uh, it's a, certainly as a comedy, I had never seen that. So it seemed ripe to uh, to take a stab at it. And Jim Carrey is sort of this hybridized David Blaine, Chris Angel. Yeah, he's the new edgy um, kind of rock and roll magician that uh, it poses a threat to the old-timey magicians. Did you work with any... I, Copperfield has a David Copperfield has a, a little cameo. Yeah, he was our he was our um, magical coordinator. He he actually designed a trick for the movie. I hope he has a credit that says magical coordinator I, in the movie. <laughs> I and I might. hope that people start adding that even to movies that are not about magic. <laughs> 
Well, our magical coordinator was I, David yeah, Copperfield. He, he what? He actually he and his team designed a trick that we performed without any special effects. So we were very, very excited about that. Had to sign a, a, a confidentiality agreement. We will not reveal the trick. It was cool. The whole idea of Vegas performing, I think, half of me thinks, oh my god, that'd be the worst thing in the world. Going to having to do the same show every night for years and years and years in front of Vegas audiences. And the other half of me feels like. I see the comfort in it. You know, like you're paid well. You live you can live in a nice place. I think you know what though? I think when you are 5 years into a 10-year contract, that's when you start to second guess that <laughs> decision because it's a lot. I mean, you those guys are committed and especially someone who's doing a, a very strenuous show. We went to see O with Oh yeah. My wife and kids came out while I was doing this press junket up in Las Vegas a couple of days ago. And the athleticism with which these performers are are doing the show, you can't believe that this is something they do maybe twice a night, every night of the week. Um, so it's, I, I you know, you ha- I really respect it. And to keep it fresh, crazy. I don't know how they do it. Yeah, night after night, like the first time they've ever done it. Right, yeah. That's a whole different level of, performing if you can sell that that way like hey i'm just like the old like dean dean martin like he's like, oh, every night he's just fucking around you right. know but it might have been the exact same show every single night oh, yeah with the same jokes and the same little fake improvs yeah and but to make it look like it's not and and that you're inviting the audience into this this world of yours it's yeah that's that takes a real ability well burt wonderstone comes out march 15th um people should go see it and you are delightful, Steve Carell. Oh, thank you. This is so nice to have you on. Thanks. Thanks I feel I, I met you one other time after the Kimmel thing, and I think I referenced it again at that point. You were so sweet about it, and you know, I don't know. It was just, it was really nice. I think the more, the more people that I talk to, the ones that tend to be really successful, and the people that I really like, also tend to be the nicest people. You and Will Ferrell, oh, and. Thanks. Tom Hanks, just like the nicest. You guys could be such dicks if you wanted. You could be such dickheads. You 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 could have such a dickhead license. It'd be so easy, and no one would be like, "Fuck that guy." They'd be like, "Well, yeah. What do you expect? What do you expect?" And you take the high road. Uh, well, not always. No. As soon as soon as this mic goes off, I'm going ballistic. All right, I'm turning it off now. Click. Mother. Fucker, what was that? <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. I'm sorry. God damn it. I'm sorry. Why did I come in here? Oh, wait, this is actually still recording. Time. It's actually still recording. What? Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's so nice to have you so on. So great to be here. Okay, I'm going to turn it off now. Click. <laughs> God damn it. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. 
Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.